Before we start this episode of Conversations with Kenyatta, I'm excited to tell you about my new partnership with Audible. Listeners can go to www.audibletrial.com backslash Kenyatta to receive a free 30-day trial. Audible is a wonderful resource with audiobooks for every reader. It even has titles from authors that have been on my podcast, such as Dr. Dan Bouts' Democracy's Data and Gail Lukasik's White Like Her. And please note that this is an affiliate link. So I may receive a commission with no cost to you, just a fee trial with so many wonderful titles. And I love to read. But with that, here's this week's episode of Conversations with Kenyatta. Welcome to episode 47 of Conversations with Kenyatta. Today's guests are Dr. Ned Bitten and Dr. Julianne Peters of John Jay College. They're the co-directors of the Northeast Slavery Records Index. So welcome Dr. Bitten and Dr. Peters to Conversations with Kenyatta. I'm so excited to have you guys here today to discuss the Northeast Slavery Records Index project. Can you describe what exactly is this project and how it came about? Dr. Bitten, do you want to go first? Okay. Um, The Northeast Slavery Records Index is an online collection of more than 70,000 records of enslavement in the Northeast from New Jersey to Maine. Mm. It is an index to those records. So you don't get the records, and we don't have the records at John Jay College. The index tells you where the record is, what's in it, Uh, various things about what's in it and sometimes you can click on it and see it because we either have digitized it on our system or we link to some place where it's digitized someplace else. The challenge is that if you have 70,000 records it's like drinking out of a fire hose to figure out what's there and so there's two ways to kind of begin to navigate a Nesri. One is that you can search individually. You can say, all right, I'm looking for uh, an enslaver and I'll give a last name and a first name and a state, maybe a town, push a button and you'll get all of the people in the database that meet the requirement in a list. Similarly, you can ask for a, a, an enslaved person by name. Uh, the other approach that we have is called a locality report. You can enter a, a, in a menu, you enter in the state, county, and the town or city. Or you can just enter in the state and the, and the, and the county. You don't have to, you can go as, 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 or you can just put in the state. And what you will get is an, an automatic, a dynamically created report of the records that are in the database right then. Because we're always adding. And so this isn't mm-hmm. something we prepared before, it's created from what's in the database at that moment. And there's about 10 tables that appear in an annotated report that says, you know, the name of the place, the kinds of records that uh, we found, the census records, lists of the enslaved people, lists of the uh, enslavers, uh, lists of... um, fugitive enslaved people, uh, the advertisements for them, lists of slave trade transactions, lists of shipping investors, lists of uh, of, um, 
people who were enslaved who fought in the Revolutionary War, uh, lists of abolitionists and people who tried to help people escape from enslavement. And then at the very end, there's a do, it, do your own research section where you can do further searches on the collection, like you could say, well, show me all of the uh, female enslavers, or show me all of the enslavers who were ministers, or show me all of the save slave trade transactions where children were being separated from parents. And you can just you can ask all those kinds of questions about the database that you corrected, collected, and this is completely free, and it's completely online. And the easiest way to find it is to go to nesri.us. That gets you there. It's got a longer computer, you know, an internet name and so on, but we made that short one nesri.us mm -hmm. and you can get there immediately and you can start to search so this question is actually for both of you because i'm very intrigued by this and uh dr peters i'll start with you so why did you get involved in this project sort of what was the catalyst for you actually ned was the catalyst because he was the person who started doing this research and he always talk about his own research into slavery in his own community he would come in and say he found this information and found that information. And to me, it was shocking to realize that slavery existed in New York State. As a child growing up in New York City, mm. I was taught that slavery was a Southern phenomenon, that it only happened in the bad South. And here I was listening to a man talk about slavery practically in my backyard. And so I persuaded him to do a presentation for our students. And when he talked to our students about slavery happening in happening in Westchester County, the students were obviously outraged and horrified by what they'd learned. And I immediately recommended that we, we replicate his research here in New York City so that we can learn more about slavery and its impact on our community. He very quickly found out that we couldn't just do New York City. So we began to create the New York State Slavery Index. And then over time, he began to form partnerships with other states and other institutions that were doing similar research. So now we've created this tool that covers eight states from New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, and Vermont. And every single piece of information that we can find, we digitize and put into a database so that a researcher who wants to study slavery can go to this one site and pull together the collected knowledge of eight states and about 15 to 20 institutions and have a ready-made package of information that tells, if not a whole story, we're trying to create a whole story, but it tells quite a story about our past. That's very interesting. And I think what's important for me, at least in the work that I do in genealogy, is all about the stories, not the name, dates, and places. And one of the things that I try to do, at least definitely with the podcast, is expose the audience to, you know, resources they may not know about, right? Things that I may come across. And this is definitely one of them. So Dr. Bitten, what got you involved with this project, starting with New York and now with the Northeast Slavery Records Index? Well, um, you know, Judy and I are not academic historians. We're professors of public administration. And in our lives, we've done all sorts of things. I mean, I've, um, but one of our programs 
in, at John Jay is a program in inspection and oversight. It's a graduate program where we prepare people to evaluate government programs and to investigate corruption and so on. And so it's kind of natural for us and our students, you know, if we say, well, where are the records of the enslaved people? Well, our students are taught how to go find the records uh, the records of whatever. I mean, especially we had one student who is in, is, is in our forensic accounting program. And she wanted to follow the money. And there was a state of New York law that, um, that gradually emancipated people. But it required that they either serve a period of, uh, of servitude or they, they could be abandoned and taken away from the mother and then um, put in basically a kind of foster care. And so the student then investigated who was paying for all the foster care. And the comptroller's office said, oh, we don't have records like that. And sure enough, she found the records in the state archive and then told them all about it. And... Um, so I guess this was just one of those puzzles that was too interesting not to follow, particularly because when I studied it in my town in Mamaroneck, New York, it took me 10 years to assemble. It was, I was always, I always said, well, maybe I figured it all out. And every year I'd have another crop of these records that showed up because someone told me or I found another source or whatever. And it seemed to me that we needed to do something so that other people could find the same kinds of records a lot more quickly. Mm -hmm. Our concept was if we did this wholesale, if we just digitized all of the records for Albany and all of the records for wherever, and people could just go after them, they, they would find out a lot of things more quickly because the, the records of slavery... Are, are all siloed. They're like in little baskets. And so if you want to say, I want to know about enslavement in my community, well, you've got 50 places you would need to go. And yet if we go to them and code everything, then, you know, it's going to be easier for you to find things. And um, it's really helpful, but it's a my background at one point was that I wrote, I wrote a book about computing and how using computers in investigation and management and all this kind of stuff. And so it was natural to say, well, what we need to do is to put the tools of big data to work on a very classical problem. And so we basically, we've got the, a really, really fast computer system that just you know, rockets through all these records to produce these instant reports mm -hmm. and, uh, and can draw connections to things that, that if you were trying to do this by hand, you just wouldn't be able to do. So it's, 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 very, it's very interesting. We do, you mentioned genealogists. One of, one of the records that we collect are birth certificates. Mm -hmm. And when we can find collections of birth certificates, these are special yeah. because typically a birth certificate is going to tell us the name of the baby, the birthday of the baby, the name of the baby's mother, possibly the name of the baby's father, and the name of the enslaver and the location and various things. And so it's like it's a it's a it's one record that gives us like ten pieces of information. 
and uh, and what we've done is to code into the record like if we if we have the name of a baby we code in the name of the baby's siblings mm. and if we we code in the name of the parent so we have gradually forming in the database these little kernels of genealogical family histories mm-hmm. and family structures and we i imagine that at some point there'll be some way of connecting to some of these and people will suddenly discover that yes they knew this person and then this person and suddenly there's a little pop and they're seeing that person's you know siblings and and seeing something something more and so and it's also part of I mean, one of the things that the students have have very they have strong feelings about is that they're they're trying to restore the identity yeah. of people whose identities were taken away their lives were taken away in some their 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 autonomy their you know their but furthermore we just erase mm-hmm. them and they're trying to to unerase them and and make it possible to construct an, an idea of who this person was and how this person lived right and with these records you can see sometimes a person's family mm-hmm. if someone in the family ran away you'll then see the the enslaver go to great effort to describe this person in great you see the face you see the you know what they did for a job you know i mean you know what their voice sounds like and so you know you can begin to take these fragments and and really have the possibility of seeing the people in in three dimensions mm-hmm. and it, it think for me as a genealogist and especially doing african american enslaved genealogy uh it's important to have that information as you talked about identifying the siblings when you can making those connections to the parents from those birth certificates or data that you have and then the the kind of eventual hopefully uh, this ties to something else where you're really creating sort of this family tree where you're telling this person's story. You're making them, you you know, you're bringing humanity back to their lives because that's exactly what we want um, and what we need as we go on this journey to discover our ancestors um, and who we are. And so my next question is then what is sort of the longer term vision for the Northeast Slavery Records Index? I mean, as far as partnering with other institutions more than you do now, or partnering with companies, uh, is there like a sort of an end game in mind, so to speak? I think one of the most important things we can do is exactly what you said, because I always see this as creating history of a people who have no history. Because unless you are documented mm. through a baptism or a funeral, or you were sold or transferred to someone else's care or you're manumitted if you didn't know how to write or read then you literally didn't exist and this was true of anybody because there was just no written record there were no you know it was no instagram to sort of document that you'd been there and so i feel as though we've discovered thousands of people that we didn't know walked the earth and what i'd like to do having named Mm. them is to establish who they were, and who they connect to. And I am very, very interested in Mm. not only telling their stories, but finding their descendants. I would love to be able to connect the dots because um, 
it's so frustrating that people are trying to find their past, trying to find their families, and they can go just so far back. And we have the records of mm-hmm. from, what, 1525 all the way up to, you know, 1860-something, and then it stops. So there's a gap that needs to be filled in. And I've talked to people, mm-hmm. um, I talked to a man who had a brother who lived to be 98, and he could go back to his father in, in you know, he know talk about his father in the 1800s and that was fabulous but most people can't do that unless they have oral histories or if they found some way to carry the story forward i would like to connect the dots and give people back Mm -hmm. their families i think that's very important i also would love to see more institutions digitizing their their records this way so that we can link them up i mean linking to new jersey and the other states was very valuable because when people were moved throughout the Northeast, whether they were emancipated or they escaped or they were allowed to to um, to um, emigrate to Canada. If we can tell their story, where they went, what happened to their lives, again, we're, we're building a, a richer history of our country. And most importantly, I think that, and this is really important with our students, so much of what's going on today politically ties back to the mm-hmm. to the institution of slavery. A decision was made in 1787 that black people were only worth three-fifths of a white person. And that notion has not left a lot of heads, you know. And and this constant denial of our history, this constant denial of critical race theory, whatever they think that is, um, this trying to suppress the truth can't really go anywhere until that truth comes out. And so I think that building this history and this historic record levels the playing field to some extent and saying, yes, we are here. We do belong mm-hmm. here. And I think it's not just for people of color, pe- people of African descent, but I think it's true of indigenous peoples as well. Until their history is told and people understand mm-hmm. their right to exist, the fact that they existed, um, we aren't going to move the needle very far on race relations in this country. I totally agree with that. Um, and I'm glad you brought that up because I that's kind of one of the reasons I decided to focus on studying slavery and the enslaved because I do feel it's the root of the it's the of the problems of the situations that we face here um, in the in the country. So Dr. Benton, do you have anything to add as far as what your vision is for the Northeast Slavery uh, Records Index? It's interesting. I think that we we started with the idea that we were doing some very basic research. And it's sort of like basic research in the physical sciences. You don't always know where you're going to get, but you're trying to assemble the information. And so we thought, in a sense, we thought of ourselves as a library, that we weren't doing the research. We were assembling the materials so that people could do the research. And I think that in the course of doing this, it's like the project speaks to us as to what it wants to be, and we listen, and then, you know, and so it it came. We thought that if it had any use, it was for genealogical stuff. People could find people. Uh, But then we found that communities wanted to find their community history, and that's that's when we started. We, we went about creating the uh, the the locality report because we wanted to say, okay, here's the story of in, the records of enslavement for your community, and now you can think about what that means, you know. But we'll we'll get you that far about it. Um, now, um, 
a, a new area involves looking at, you know, because we're going to be at the University Studying Slavery Conference, and we've been involved in that, we've been watching universities study slavery, and I've been waiting for Nesri, the project, to sort start speaking to me, and, and basically we're working on a university report mm. for the, first of all, for the, the colonial colleges. The colleges and universities created before 1790 or in the early periods of the United States where we can assemble all of the records that we have that might relate to a college. And I'll give you an example. We, we were starting on this with a couple colleges and one of them is Union College up in Schenectady. And they have an early leader and they know that that leader enslaved two other people. They, they know one person from then, but they know that this person enslaved two other people, but they didn't know who he was. Well, we stuck his name into Nesri, and bingo, we came up with the two people that he was enslaving in Albany before he went to Schenectady. Mm. And so it's like, we have, because we've got so many records, we have the ability to see things that a, that a university studying very closely its own records wouldn't see. We'll, we'll code up everybody's records, but we want them to see the bigger picture. And one of the things that we're finding, we're going through accreditation at the college, and we have the inspectors coming in, and they're very interested in what our mission is and, and how we affect our students' lives after college. And so we're sort of asking, all right, um, what does it mean to a, a university if the president and the professors and the leaders are modeling and normalizing enslavement? And all of these students come to the university to study. Are they going to leave and graduate and then go back to their communities and teach about it, you know, and, and model what they learned at college. And what we're doing, therefore, is we've, 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 we're, we're taking the early graduating populations, the early alumni lists from campuses, and sticking them in Nesri in bulk, and pulling the, it's like a slot machine, ka-ching, 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 we get all of these hits, and we're trying to go through and validate them, but we will have uh, hundreds and hundreds of people that graduated from these these colleges who are then going off. You know, the colleges like like to study at the campus. You know, and oh, at this campus, this was this was per, this person, and in this building, this person was enslaved. But you know that the effect of a college that's modeling and normalizing enslavement is all over the country. You know, they're sending students out and they're going back and they're saying, well, uh, the, 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 the president of the college had slaves. It must be okay. Right. And, um, and so then the other thing is that the early colleges, like Harvard, early on was the first kind of thing they studied was religion. I mean, they had an awful lot of, of divinity students. Mm -hmm. And so um, we were looking at the, the phenomenon of ministers mm -hmm. as enslavers. Yeah. And then the role of 
colleges and divinity schools in modeling and normalizing enslavement. So then we have all of these ministers go out into their congregations. They model and normalize enslavement. And so we're going to have some reports for this conference in which we'll show them. We're not, it's going to take a while for us to really get there, but we'll show them a report that is a sort of an outcome study. Uh, here's what was going on at your campus, and then now here's what your students and your ministers and so on went off and did. Mm. And um, I think it's it's going to give a more, it's it's a big data picture right, right. of what a college's contribution to enslavement is. And I think it's going to be a, a an important new way of thinking about the the, the the role of the of the colonial colleges and universities in promoting enslavement. Right. I mean, it's, so you brought up a lot of things. Thanks for sharing that. One, I like the report for uh, the colonial colleges, right? So because they do tend to just stay within their in their campus in their lane when they're looking at stuff. The other thing is bringing up the ministers because I find this a lot in my research and in my client research. And when I tell clients, when they ask me about the enslaver and I said it was a Baptist, I say it's a Baptist minister, there's always a moment of kind of silence. What did you say? And I'm like, yes, it says right here in the census record, this is what, you know, and they, and I don't think people don't think about that, but I appreciate the point of these students coming to these colleges and going back into their communities and modeling what they see, the president, their professors, and others in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, but my next question is, um, let's focus a little bit on university studying slavery. I've been involved with university studying slavery, I would say definitely more than five years in a sense that I just go as a genealogist, right? Because I am very interested. One of my pet peeves the silos that are created with records related to slavery. Mm-hmm. And so I have been, has been my mission, has not been accomplished, to somehow tie all these things together, right? Which is a very... Here we are. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. <laughs> these different Great. projects together so that I have access, academics have access, you know, historians, just regular folks that want to look at records related to slavery. So that's kind of why I started to get involved. Um, but how did you guys get involved with university studying slavery? Judy Lynn? I mean, we just heard about it and joined. Judy Lynn was our official representative with another, uh, with a dean, and um, we just got involved. Oh, okay, great. Okay. Yeah, I, I find it very, uh, for those who are listening that don't know about it, I find it very fascinating to come together in, in that environment. We were at UVA last year, and mm-hmm. just to, to kind of see what different stu- schools are doing, right, how they're addressing it. This is my personal opinion. When it comes to addressing slavery on campus, there's two roads that I've seen. There's the, we're going to have a special commission road that's dictated by the president. Mm -hmm. And then there's the kind of grassroots professor type of road, right? We're looking at this Mm -hmm. based on our campus. Those two roads lead to something different at the end, in my opinion. The top down gives me a report. The grassroots may give me additional names. It may give me a memorial. It may give me a plaque. Not saying that the top down doesn't do that, but I feel like what I appreciate as a genealogist and as someone who's a descendant of the enslaved is the 
grassroots approach. Both of them work in their own ways. And I think both we need to have both, but that's where I'm really kind of drawn to. And so that's one of the reasons why I enjoy going to university studying slavery and meeting folks that maybe just one person in their university. Like when we were there, Dr. Lynn Rainville from Washington and Lee, I work with her a lot on stuff that she's doing at Washington and Lee. She's the only person I work with there, right? But if you think about the folks at University of Mississippi, there's a big group of like 40 plus, I think, um, folks involved in their slavery study group. So I think the, I like the concept of university studying slavery. I hope collectively we can work together on kind of managing these silos. If you have any ideas on how to get it done before I'm 85, that would be appreciated because I feel like it's taking too long. But yeah, I, I just really think and hope that we can all find a way to work together through this conference so that we can make these records accessible for everybody. So let's get back into discussion around the Northeast Slavery Records Index. I noticed you guys have funded several projects. And so I have, uh, this is a kind of a two-part question. So how do you decide which projects to fund? And then describe some of the projects that you have funded. So Dr. Benton, do you want to go first? that? Sure. Uh, well, the uh, American Society, uh, the American Council of Learned Societies gave us a grant to do 14 small projects to add records to the, uh, to the database. And so we put out an RFP and circulated it to various people through our network. And we even sent it to the University mm. Studying Slavery indicating that this was about the Northeast. And then um, mm-hmm. we had a group of people who went through the proposals. And I, I think there's a kind of a, 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 a balance between the number of records that someone might be able to locate and the difficulty of finding the records. Because some records are valuable to mm-hmm. find, even if, I mean, we're trying to get the ship manifests from early ships. And like we have one person who speaks Portuguese because we are are trying to get, you know, the Portuguese ships. We want to get the names of people. We want to learn what happened. We know they came and went, but the only way to go into it is to have some people. And we just had a meeting with people from Portugal to work on that. And so, um, but um, we have people mm. who work in yeah. historical societies. We have people who work in academic libraries. And then we have um, museum people and uh, also independent historians. I mean, people who have a day job and are just sort of like we are, kind of just excited and, you know, can't give up looking for this stuff. The result is that uh, we're, we're, we're getting... A, a sort of an injection of new records in in areas that were where one of the things we're doing is is getting the records of the congregational churches in Connecticut because in the colonial period the, the Connecticut was a religious colony and so the churches were the government and so their records were are very detailed and very thorough and so we've been going through those in New Jersey, we're going through the county enslavement, the county and town enslavement records. In Massachusetts, we're going through the vital statistics, the early vital statistics. And um, we've got a person in upstate New York 
who who knows anyway she knows where a lot of the birth certificate information is in the in the counties and towns upstate and so she's going after that and then we also have a team that's looking at college records of enslavement going through all the colleges that have done their reports of the colonial colleges and just coding up what they found as part of what we'll be using for our college report and then we'll add to it with what we find and um so that's that's um what we're using that project for i'd love to have the project be refunded because we've got many more people and ideas that we'd love to activate we'll keep working with whatever the resources and opportunities are that we have and so i guess have you thought as far as um refunding of the project i mean is that something that you go to a different organization to get done or is it something you guys would work with your institution to do uh, what are some thoughts to help on that so you can get these additional projects funded and records are made available? Seriously, we'd like to get more, more funding wherever we can get it. We also have a grant through, through CUNY, a small grant that has enabled us to hire students to do all the data management, you know, the um, data entry for all these records, because once we find records, we have to actually upload them to the database. So they have to be put into spreadsheets. You know, we started this project out with no funding, you know, basically just the cost of, of the software. I think only lately we've really discovered what we could do with money um, and how, how, how having fun. That's true because, like, like Ned said, it's a labor of love. Mm -hmm. um, it's something we did because we thought it was important. We weren't looking for a big pot of money to enable us to do this. We started doing it and then thought about, well, if we get some money, we can now do this and do that. So we collected a lot of information just on our own initially, but having funding enables us to extend our reach and find additional resources. Mm -hmm. So um, finding other sources of funding will be important going forward because it enables us to broaden our scope. Um, and hopefully, I think looking forward, we also want to get other states um, involved in this because the history of slavery isn't about people who necessarily stayed in one place. People moved and, and things happened that go across state lines. So if we could add possibly Pennsylvania, maybe, you know, yeah. Delaware, Maryland, we can extend ourselves farther and connect more dots. So additional funding would enable us to do that. And so Dr. Ben, did you have anything to add to that? Well, I think one of our concerns is, is simply the sort of funding the program in a sustainable way. And mm -hmm. so we're looking at ways that we can get some endowment that would mean that the, 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 bear, the core costs of operating the index would be permanently funded. And so that's, uh, that's another uh, effort. I mean, at some point, Judy and I will retire and we want the the baby to grow up and survive. That's one of the things I, I wonder if, and I don't know if you guys talk about this maybe casually at University Studying Slavery, because I've, funding is always going to be, it seems to me, to be an issue in higher ed. And, and I say that coming from a background of I spent most of my career in higher education selling software. 
right? So I worked for Blackboard and then I worked for Cornerstone, did HR stuff. So I've been around higher education institutions a lot and funding is always something. So I wondered if maybe casually, have you guys had any conversations with other institutions at University Studying Slavery about how, what they're doing and how they're trying to sustain the, maybe the small, the projects they're working on. They, you know, live beyond your time at the institution. Well, I mean, we do have partner institutions. We work with Rutgers in New Jersey and with Central Connecticut State University in Connecticut. And, um, you know, and we'll, we'll, we'll join, we'll certainly welcome other universities that want to join with us. But, you know, uh, one of the things that we, we've always believed is that it doesn't depend on the mm-hmm. money, at least for the, for the foreseeable future. Judy and I can keep this thing going on fumes if that's what's required. I mean, that the university has the infrastructure that we can use to operate it. We're, we're committed to make this thing work and we're committed not to have it hold back. You know, we're not waiting for funding to do the university report thing. We're just doing it. So here we are. Well, I appreciate the work that you guys are doing because, uh, again, a lot of people don't talk about slavery in the North. East, and it is something that folks bring up a lot in the South. And I spent a lot of my time studying slavery in the South, for sure. But what advice would you give to folks that are listening to the podcast or, um, you know, they may have a project that is sort of a labor of love for them? Like, what advice do you give them to kind of start a project similar or uh, ways to keep it going? Because I feel like sometimes, and maybe it's just me, but I feel when I work on certain things that I'm passionate about, you sometimes feel like you're the only yep. one. Right. You're you're going away, you're doing your stuff and you're thinking nobody else is doing the same thing. I can't get this to happen or this isn't happening. And so you feel isolated. So I always love to get advice from folks that are doing it and are successful at it to help others that are listening. I think what you said about the university studying slavery was very important. I think that knowing that there are other people doing what you're doing or at least sharing your zeal for what you're doing is very, very important. It's empowering. It's something that I think fuels you, empowers you to go on through whatever difficulty you're going on. So I think that reaching out to other people who are interested in this kind of work is is very important just to, even if it's just to commiserate. Mm -hmm. Um, Talking to other people doing what you love to do is very important. I also think that if you're trying to do something like this, you should contact us. We've been very generous with other institutions who want to start something like this. You know, we we have shared our database model with other people. We readily, Ned readily will tell them what to do, how to get it started. But it's not, I mean, what we're doing, we're not trying to be proprietary. We're not trying to hide this from anybody and make it special. Mm-hmm. We want everybody be, to be doing this because if every state were to try to do something like this, and several states are, but if, if the more states try to do this, the more the truth will get out. You know, and that's, that's good on its own. Being able to create these, these resources will enable other scholars to tell more stories, and it'll, mm-hmm. it'll build momentum, and, and that truth will get out there. John Jay College prides itself on being fierce advocates for justice. That's our college motto. And so we pride ourselves on getting the truth out there. And the more we share this model, the more we share what we're doing, 
the more we speak to other people, the more we communicate. One of my big goals is to have a college-wide conversation about race and slavery. And I'm actually going up to, to um, another CUNY college next week to do just that. But the more we have a conversation about slavery, about our past, the more we're empowered to think about our future and what do we do about our past. So mm-hmm. I think this is very, very important. Mm, agreed. Agreed. Dr. Benton, what about you? Well, you know, just something that the, the technical design of Nesri, we designed the New York Slavery Records Index first, but we designed it with the ability to add other states. Mm, mm-hmm. And so the, the, the structure of it didn't really change when we added more New England states. And if we were to add three more states, it would take us less than a day to adapt what we're doing to, um, to, to be able to accommodate that because it's really just another code in the, date, in the, in the state field. Mm-hmm. And they could produce the same. All the reports would work for them. That, you know, that, and and the, the, the cost of data structure mm-hmm. is practically zero. You know, we could go from 70000 to 500000 and it really wouldn't change the cost of operating NESRI. Mm-hmm. We could go from eight states to 15 states, and it wouldn't really, the computer wouldn't, wouldn't burp. And so, you know, part of this is, I, I, I think we're ready to do a larger project, but um, it would take commitments by some other teams of people in other states to join us. I like that because I do feel like sometimes when you think about the technical design of these projects, folks go in with the very, sometimes very laser focused and not thinking about expanding. And then once they do try to expand, they figure out, okay, we have to redesign it. So it seems to me you're saying kind of think, you know, you may have a vision for the project right now or with the data you have right now, but kind of think longer term, think broader so that it would be easy to add additional states. It'll be easy to add additional, uh, you know, data to to the to the structure, which is which is important. But to switch gears really quick, I know that this is a labor of love for you guys and you, but you work in uh, or teach in public administration. So I'll start with Dr. Peters. Sort of what other projects are you working on outside of the Nesri um, project? I'm, next week, I'm going up to the Bronx, where there is a colonial mansion in the middle of Van Cortland Park that was owned by the Van Cortland family. And on that property is a cemetery of the family, so the family plot. And outside of that, there is a little burial ground for people who lived, who worked in the household. And it has recently been designated as the enslaved African burial ground. Mm. And... Students at Lehman College, which is a short distance from the park, discovered this. I mean, they knew it existed, but they began to go there and they discovered that it was it was sort of recognized and sort of cleaned up a little bit and cordoned off and they want to do a proper memorial. And a group of students up there is really excited about really digging in because they want to not only assure that there is a proper ceremony, restoration of the burial ground and the people there are honored, but they want to know who those people are. They want to engage in learning more about slavery in the Bronx. Um, And 
these students are part of the the honors college at City University of New York. And so the person who is in charge of student engagement, who has access to funds, hmm. um, actually committed funds so that students could engage in this research. Not only that, but she also talked to other professors and they have in, they have committed to teaching their students about slavery. So students up there are going to be digging into the Bronx archives the Kingsbridge Historical Society, and a few other organizations, and they're working with the Schomburg mm -hmm. Library also, to uncover more information about slavery in the Bronx. And what they are setting as a goal is they want to build resources for Nesri. And they asked me to come and talk about what we, what we do and our involvement, and I'm going to go show them our locality report, which is not very, very deep. We don't have a great deal on the Bronx, mm. but we do know the names of people. They identified, I think, two people who lived at the manor. And I think we've got six or seven people who were enslaved there. Okay. So we'll share information. And they're also very interested in building the community history. So they, they want to go out and talk to people in the community, they want to go out and look at the churches in the community and find out what kinds of records they have. They want um, Students want to go and talk to their elderly relatives and see if they can find any family history. The Bronx archives have some history, and there's a great historian up at Van Cortland I want to talk to. But I'm very excited about this. Um, the people up there are very, very excited about taking this on. They want to be a part of building this history of slavery in New York City, and especially in the Bronx. So that's what I'm going to be working on. I've also been working with descendants of the Jay family who've been trying to discover descendants of people who were enslaved by the Jays. And so we've been looking a little further upstate, in Bedford Hills, Ossining, New York, and areas around the John Jay Manor, um, Homestead, John Jay Homestead, I should say, um, to see if we can identify people. But again, we're ha we have the problem of we can reach people who are currently there who can look back to a certain point, and we can identify people up to a certain point, and now we're trying to close that gap. I, I just love hearing that institutions are digging into this stuff and that, you know, what you're doing, people are seeing and now they want to get involved. And also, I think working with the descendants of the Jay family is great because I feel sometimes, depending on who it is and when they discover it, I've run into this as genealogists, folks tend to feel a certain way. Shame, embarrassment, you know, denial. Um, happens when they discover that their family enslaved people. And usually I've seen it and it approached me after I've given a presentation. So it's usually someone who's the family historian or the genealogist for the family that discovers it. But I always feel like when you're working with descendants of the enslavers and then uh, hopefully can at some point bring in the descendants of the enslaved, that that starts a conversation and that it's very yeah. important work. Um, well, we're a college named after John Jay, mm -hmm. who is known to be an enslaver and the person responsible for creating the law that eventually ended slavery in New York State. So he's got a complicated history. Mm. And that was one of the things that Ned put on our website immediately when we launched. Mm -hmm. So we were very forthright, right out front, that we are a college with a complicated history. We weren't a colonial college that engaged in slavery, but we were named for somebody who's held up as the first Chief Justice of the United States, mm -hmm. but he has this complicated history. His father was a slave ship investor. He was his, he was an enslaver of many people, 
but he also became an abolitionist and his sons worked very hard to end slavery. Mm, that's great that you that you were just very upfront with that, right, with that information um, so that people know that. So, Dr. Benton, what other projects are you working on at this moment? Well, at this moment, I'm, I'm working on the projects that I said I was working on. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the this project is is extremely interesting, mm-hmm. and I I really don't um, try to plan too much about what I'm going to do next because the project speaks to me. The people involved in the project speak to me. And I just get involved in the next thing. It's uh, really interesting. I, I can I can think of different things that we've got to do, but the most important thing right now is the university project and wrapping up the fourteen uh, grants because those are underway. And then and then perhaps finding a way to keep going to find some more of these records that are harder to find, mm-hmm. and then. You know, who knows? I, I, I tell you, if we have this conversation next year, there'll be three or four new things that we didn't know about that happened. And now we're going to do this or now that people want to help us to do that. Right. It, uh, it's very, very interesting. Absolutely. I really appreciate both of you coming to conversation with Kenyatta today. I mean, I appreciate the work that you do. It's very valuable. It's helpful. And I'm glad that there's someone, that there are other folks, I know there are a lot more people, but other folks that actually have the interest, the zeal, the desire, the passion to discover the stories of the enslaved, to bring to bring that humanity to them and make sure they're not lost to history. So I appreciate everything that you both do at John Jay and other, and throughout, you're working with other universities and universities studying slavery. So thank you so much for being on Conversations with Kenyatta today. Thank you. Thank you. Conversations with Kenyatta is produced by Kenyatta D. Berry and Caitlin Owl and features Kenyatta D. Berry. The music for this episode was Good Vibe by Ketza. Follow Kenyatta on Instagram under the handle Kenyatta.Berry, on Facebook at facebook.com slash KenyattaDB, and on Twitter at KenyattaDB. You can also find more information on her book, and upcoming events on her website at kenyattaberry.com. As a reminder, the views expressed by guests on Conversations with Kenyatta are their own and do not reflect the views of Kenyatta D. Barry.